Thank you so much for listening to this pre-recorded episode of Pub Talk Live. To find out more about Pub Talk Live, including how you can watch live, go to pubtalk.live. Thank you so much to my Patreon podcast sponsors, Brenda Drake and the Shape of a Star podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the October 9th episode of Pub Talk Live, the live publishing talk show. Um, Today we're doing Author Journeys. Author Journeys features an author talking about their experiences with publication. Today I do have my notes on a second monitor, so if I'm looking over, that's what I'm doing. So um, sorry about that, but I'm your host, Sarah Nicholas. I'm a young adult author. I am a library event planner, and I am a uh, assistant literary agent. That was the first time I'm saying that. That's fun. Okay. Uh, You can subscribe to Reminders via email by clicking the link in the description. Um... And if you'd like to support the show or the podcast or anything else I do, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash pubtalklive. There is a link in the description. So I'm going to go ahead and bring on our author today. Uh, Jessica Vitalis is a Columbia MBA wielding writer recently named a 2021 Canada Council of the Arts grant recipient. An active volunteer in the kid community, she brings her experience growing up in a non-traditional childhood to her stories exploring themes like death and grief, domestic violence, and socioeconomic disparities. So please welcome Jessica to the show. Hello. Hey, Sarah. How are you? Hi. Good. Um, We have some people saying hi in the comments. So that's, yeah, that's fun. Um, Thanks, Danny. Uh, Okay. So um, the viewer poll is a little bit different this week because I did a poll on Wednesday um, because I was just curious about it and I decided that I was going to use that for the viewer poll for the show. So it's already been done. Um, but we'll talk about it at the end. So I just wanted to let y'all know, <clears throat> excuse me, cause I was like, I haven't been able to talk about this with anyone. So <laughs> now we can talk about it. Um, so we're going to dive right into news. And if you haven't seen, uh, the first news is I have some personal news. I am now an assistant literary agent at the Bias Literary Agency. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Yeah, so I'm very excited. It's something I've been trying for for a long time. Um, And I'm getting up to speed this week. And I did announce uh, last week that, unfortunately, that does mean that I am ending Pub Talk Live in the way that it is now. Yeah, Um, I needed to uh, uh, sleep sometimes. (laughs) So... um, (laughs) Uh, but we are continuing the Wednesday write-ins. Um, Queries, Quams, and Quirks, the podcast is continuing. And also, I'm, I, I still have the channel. I still have the branding and everything. So if I decide I want to interview someone, then I may just do kind of a one-off show every now and then. So that will still be happening. All right. Now let's move into publishing news. And there is so much this week. <laughs> um, all right. So PEN America held its annual gala in person this past week with a vaccine mandate in effect. They also said they had a mask mandate, but the picture I saw, everyone was eating dinner and no one had a mask on. So. Um, but Robert Iger, is that how you say his name? I just realized, I don't know how to say it. No idea. No idea. Yeah, I think so. Um, he's a Disney executive. He was the Knights corporate honoree. And during his speech, an attendee held up a sign demanding that Disney pay its writers, which is an ongoing issue that we have discussed on the show before. Um, And if you know anything about PEN America, you know, like their whole thing is freedom of speech. So, um, you know, someone would be able to do something like this at one of their galas when they might not be able to do it at a different event that was similar. Um, But I just thought that was really interesting. And um, 
especially because there is that ongoing issue of like Disney is not wanting to pay the writers whose contracts they acquired when they purchased a publisher. So if you don't know about that, check that out. Yeah, I have not been following that issue, but this is reminding me that I had meant to do some reading on it. So I'm glad that we have the link that I can go check it out and see what's been going on lately. Oh, I'm glad you mentioned that. So um, Jessica just mentioned the link um, at the end of the show. I put all the links in the description so you can go and read more about any of the things that we're talking about. Um, and if you're watching the replay, obviously they're already there. And if you're listening to the podcast version, they are already in the link in the description too. Perfect. Okay, so the next piece of news, the National Book Foundation has announced the five finalists for the 2021 National Book Award for Young People's Literature. So we have Xing Yin Yor, or excuse me, Xing Yin Kor for The Legend of Auntie Po, Melinda Lowe for The Last Night at the Telegraph Club, Kyle Lukoff for Too Bright to See, Kekla Magoon for Revolution in Our Time, The Black Panther's Party's Promise to the People, and Amber McBride for Me, moth so super excited those are fantastic selections and i'm just really excited for all of them yeah telegraph club was a i know it's like a a lesser honor but still was an audio book of the week on pub talk live a little while ago so awesome super cool well i have a little claim to fame with one of them too because like kyle lukoff was um somebody that I spoke to because he signed with Saba Solomon, who is my first agent. So I had a chance mm. to talk to him about Saba. And so I I love all of these authors, but there's a little tiny piece of me that's like, yay, Kyle, <laughs> this is so awesome. And yay, Saba. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So librarians in Wyoming are facing possible prosecution due to parent complaints about the library stocking books about sex, LGBTQ issues, and pregnancy in the teen and children's section. Um, I should point out these books are not out of the norm for library collections, um, but parents contacted the sheriff's office and prosecutors are reviewing the case. A pastor leading the charge says, quote, it's really easy to go into the library and look around a little bit and find a filthy book that should not even be in a public library. All of this is happening in banned books week too. Yeah, so. yeah. I don't um, even think I can comment on this, Sarah, because my head just might explode. Flames will start coming yeah. out. And, uh. It's like okay. one of the most egregious examples of book banning we've seen because they're literally trying yeah. to prosecute librarians. I mean, that's wrong on so many levels. So many levels, no. right? Like it goes against everything that literature is about. Literally, everything. Laura said, have they heard of the internet? And actually, Laura, <laughs> that was mentioned in the article. So if you read it later, um, one of the guys like trying to prosecute them um, was basically like, well, I guess people the kids can just he said something like eight year olds can go on Pornhub or something like that. Um, and I was like, I don't. Okay, that was an I mean, let's just hope it gets thrown out of court, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Hopefully, at least, um, hopefully, we'll see ALA stepping up too and providing some support for those librarians. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, in some good news, uh, well, first part's bad news, but then we have some good news. Unit sales of print books dipped in the third quarter, but they're still up 11% for the year to date. And in 2020, book sales only slipped half a percentage point despite the pandemic. So overall, things are looking pretty good for publishing. So that's great news. 
Yeah, I thought that was fascinating because um, you had put the first one in and then I had seen the second one. Yeah. And I was like, you're telling me that even with all the bookstores closed and everything, like book sales only slipped half a percentage point. That's that seems yeah. like a good thing. Yeah. I mean, it's nice <laughs> that people are turning to books. <laughs> for sure. For sure. I mean, back in March of 2020, we weren't even sure if publishing was going to continue or what was going to happen. I mean, we weren't sure if the whole world was going to continue, but yeah, I love that people yeah. are turning to books to read during the yeah. pandemic instead of turning on the television or other things, I guess. <laughs> all right. Um, okay. You may have heard about this. It was all, all over Twitter uh, last week. The Plum Creek mm -hmm. Literary Festival was canceled about two weeks ago after several authors withdrew out of protests. The festival is hosted at and supported by Concordia University, which has a code of conduct that discriminates against LGBTQ people. Um, the festival also declined to place in their bookstore, the festival bookstore, several books written by attending authors with LGBT content, despite selling similar books that did not have queer content. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's the whole thing was kind of a mess. And and then they like tried to almost shame the authors when they tweeted. I don't yeah. know if you saw it. They really they kind like, of dug in their feet about it all in yeah. the beginning. They're so like, it's I'm a shame all see. these authors canceled and the kids yeah. won't get to enjoy the festival. Right. Like yeah. taking no responsibility whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. It was really mishandled from the very beginning. Yeah. Yeah. That's too bad. But it is too bad for the children, but it's more important, I think, that we stand up for the rights of, of everybody. So I'm clearly they got yeah. the message. Um, yeah, well, my, I think one of my tweets, sorry, on it was like, okay, but what about all the kids that like you were sending the very clear message to that they're not allowed? They don't. You know, they don't. There's no place for them at the They table. don't belong. Yeah. That's so. right. <laughs> All right, true. go ahead. Well, and ending a festival like that makes room for another open and inclusive festival. That's the hope. Yeah. So, um, okay, despite swearing in 1997 that she would never sell adaptation rights and making her children promise they wouldn't, Sue Grafton's estate has signed a deal for a television adaptation. But get this, she actually told a magazine that she made her children promise and she said, we took a blood oath, and if they do so, I will come back from the grave, which they know I can do. So first of all, I just love her, and I think everything about this is completely awesome. <laughs> like, they just went ahead and did it anyway. <laughs> I know. this. like, I read this, and it was, like, honestly an amusing to me, even though, like, obviously, you're you're going against her very fervent wishes. Right. Um, and it, it seems to be her uh, husband who's kind of, like leading the efforts um yeah. but you can read the article the one of the main reasons she didn't want a television adaptation is she had worked in television before and she like just didn't trust them to adapt books <laughs> ever <Properly. laughs> yeah. and so her husband's like well television's changed since she worked in it so i feel like it's better now but uh, like the whole thing was just like really amusing to me and yeah um and I really hope that her ghost comes back and haunts her children because that's that would be the hilarious. hope. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. She sounds like quite a character. Yeah. Um, all right.
The 2021 Nobel Prize in Literature has been announced and it was awarded to Zanzibar born UK writer Abdulzarek Garnra for his quote, uncompromising and compassionate penetration of the effects of colonialism and the fate of the refugee in the gulf between cultures and continents, end quote. Um, yeah, we have a lot of, uh, there was a lot of awards and shortlists and stuff announced in the last week. Mm -hmm. I guess it's just that time again. So this is this is one of the big ones, though. I'm yeah, glad the Nobel sure. Prize committee got their stuff together. Yes. They've been yep. struggling. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I think we can just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> OK. Um, oh, my gosh. OK. So the next one is for a debut author, a super heartbreaking and terrifying one. But if you have not heard yet. Publishing is not immune to the country's supply chain issues. So books are getting pushed back, stuck in port for months, selling out before publication with second print runs months out and lots of other issues. So the bottom line is if you want any books coming out in the next couple of months, the best thing to do is to pre-order them and uh, publishers are definitely looking at pre-order numbers when they decide which books they want to prioritize. So the best way to support your favorite authors is definitely to pre-order. Yeah, um, it's pretty bad. So like um, regular viewers may know this, but I've recently become obsessed with TikTok. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but there's this guy on it who is a financial analyst for one of the big five publishers. And he talks a lot about like, finance related things to publishing and he's done a couple of videos on this and um he's a great one to follow if if you're interested in learning more about all of that which yeah, is that terrifying. sounds cool yeah i'm probably better off not knowing i don't think that would be great for my anxiety <laughs> yeah, i had a friend who um debuted two weeks ago and uh her book sold out before the release date and they're like, we don't know when we can print more books. So she just has, yeah, like on release day, had no books available for sale because the print run, first print run had sold out. That's so terrifying. I mean, on one hand, it's so fabulous that there was such yeah. high demand, but then you have to start thinking about what does that do for the next book sales and what does it do for your overall numbers and the disappointed yeah. audience. And there's just so many complications with all of this. Yeah. Right now. So if you like eBooks, <laughs> yeah right <laughs> and, thank you goodness know, for e books. yeah yeah uh, there might be a lot let's see oh, all right so two of hollywood's most powerful ta talent agencies have become one creative arts agency or caa has agreed to purchase icm partners both agencies have 29 literary agents among them we tend to think of them in terms of like they represent actors and they represent TV writers, but they do have, both of them have literary agent departments. Yep. Um, and so this is just like a trend of like more and more consolidation that we see in the industry. So. Yeah, um, there was actually another article I saw today too, just talking about where all the midlist publishers, right? The yeah. consolidation is happening in publishing too, where you have your huge big publishers and then you have the tiny little indies and not a lot in the middle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So eventually there'll just be one publisher. <laughs> I hope not, but you might be right. You might be right. Um, oh, this is good news. The New York Public, well, I think it's good news. I'd be curious to hear what you think, Sarah, but the New York Public Library is the latest major library system to eliminate all late fines. They also cleared all prior late fines. 
Yeah, so I like I like that this is a trend among libraries or a lot of libraries are eliminating um, late fines, late fees and and that kind of thing. Um, I did see one tweet about it that I felt kind of misrepresented the topic though, because it was like, it was Chicago Public Library got rid of their late fees and they it said they lost $900,000 revenue, which is like a very small percentage of the city's budget is how it was framed. So it was like it was 0.3% of the city's budget or something like that, which makes it seem like it's 0.3% of the library's budget, but that's the city includes like firemen and police and you know um yeah. and so just framing that way it like made it seem like oh this is a small loss to the library it is not an in uh inconsequential loss to the library right. um and the reason why i'm saying this is because if you want your library to go find free which i think is awesome and i think it opens up the library to a lot more users um you have to make sure that your politicians are going to financially support the library right. and make up for that lost income. Um, yeah. So there are a lot of people who constantly want things that libraries canceled, <laughs> as we discussed earlier. Um, so if you like your library and you want to support them, um, it's a good thing for them to hear from you as well. Yeah. But I love I love the fact that because I know at our library particularly we see and I know I have seen this in librarian groups so I know it's like a common thing is um an adult will get fines on their card and then they'll use their child's card to check out materials and then not return them and then get fines on that and then the kid can't use their library card right um which is just like terrible but yeah so frustrating yeah all right so our last piece of news Pub Talk Live favorite Jason Reynolds, we Yay. are a fan in these parts, has extended his term as National Ambassador for Young People's Literature for a third year. He is the first three-year ambassador in the program's history. Last year, they kind of said it was because of COVID. They didn't really say that this year, but like I mentioned, things have been very different in yeah. the last couple of years yeah. in this position. So. Well, and he's just done such a fabulous job, and he's such a yeah, fabulous so mouthpiece. Yeah, love if that. You, if you see the way he talks to children, I just love, love the way that he talks to children. He yeah, never talks down to them. He always really, like. He's super authentic. Yeah, he's amazing. Yeah, yeah love it. Big fans cool. here. Yep, for sure. All right. It is time to switch into the interview portion. So Yay. it's always kind of, I think it's weird because like <laughs> you're like a co-host and all of a sudden you're an interviewer. So put on a different hat. Got um, it. <laughs> all right. So we're going to talk to Jessica today about her uh, journey to publication, the lessons that she's learned along the way, all that kind of stuff. So we're going to start kind of simple. When mm -hmm. and why did you decide that you wanted to be an author? So my journey to publication has been long and winding. I read a lot and I wrote a lot as a child, but I'm always fascinated by the authors who say that they grew up knowing that they wanted to be authors because I don't know where I thought all the books I was reading in these libraries came from, but I didn't know that they were written by real people. I don't think that thought <laughs> ever crossed my mind. I'm not kidding. I had, it just never even occurred to me that becoming an author was something I could do. So I wrote a lot all the way through high school. And then I went off to university and I was taking a nonfiction writing course and my professor had published a textbook. And he asked me if I would write an essay for the next iteration of the textbook. And that was like 
a huge light bulb moment for me because I was like, what? Real people write textbooks like or books at all? <laughs> maybe, maybe this is something I could do. And he wants me to write. Oh, maybe I'm actually good at this writing stuff. So that was definitely a light bulb moment. And I kept writing a little bit through my 20s, but I went into business and something really weird happened to me when I went to business school and got my MBA in my late 20s. So I thought that I was going to go into film and television production. That was kind of the story I sold to the business school. That's what I was thinking. And what actually happened was um, I took this class at business school and the professor had us do an assignment in one of my marketing classes called your ideal career exercise. And so he had us spend a week designing our ideal job. And so I tried to design the film executive ideal job, but we had to write down like our schedules, who we were hanging out with, our salary, what we ate, when we took breaks. And I wasn't excited about any of it. So that's when I finally had to sit down and really take a look at myself and go, you know, the only thing I've ever really loved to do is write and admit that my dream was really to become an author. So I did that, but it still took me a few more years before I actually tried to become an author. And then um, it was after the birth of my second kiddo in my 30s when I finally realized, like, it's kind of now or never. Like, this is a chance in my life where I can start to do some writing when the kids are napping or after they go to bed. And so I would like to say that I decided to become an author and was a smash instant success. But my journey took me 13 years. So after I decided to start writing, it took me another six or seven years to get an agent. And it wasn't until my third book that I signed with my first literary agent. And at that point, I really thought that I'd kind of made it, that my book would sell and I'd finally become a published author. But my third book didn't sell and my fourth book didn't sell and my fifth book didn't sell. And I had moved states and I had moved countries and my agent had went on maternity leave a few times and another six or seven years had passed. So it wasn't until 13 years into my journey that I finally sold my first book. So it took a long time for this baby <laughs> to come into yeah. the world. <laughs> so did you, um, you left your first agent because you keep, you keep referring to her as your first agent. So you have a different agent now? That's right. So it was in January of 2020. I was in the process of finishing my sixth novel and I had a really good relationship with my first agent. I mentioned before, Saba Solomon. I think she's fantastic and we're still good friends, but we had a heart to heart and we'd been working together for so many years without a sale. And I had moved from writing very realistic contemporary stories mm -hmm. to writing fantasy. And that's not really totally her wheelhouse, the stuff that I was writing. And so we decided that it would be best to part ways and just have a fresh start for both of us. And that was really frightening after 13 years to feel like I was starting from scratch. I didn't know if I would ever find another agent, but I had kind of a little bit of a miracle, I guess. I was working in pitch wars, which I assume most of your audience knows quite a lot about pitch wars. Um, I hope so. But, yeah, I hope so. <laughs> So Erin Entrada Kelly, who is a Newbery Medal winning author, was a Pitch Wars agent in 2020. And she had posted something behind the scenes saying that she was looking for manuscripts to take to her UCLA writing class and teach. And she said mm -hmm. if anybody wanted to submit a work in progress, she would review the first five pages with her class and give the writer her feedback plus the feedback from her class. Since I was just getting ready to query, I thought this was, of course, a miracle and a fantastic opportunity. So I sent off my pages. And about a month later, she got back to me 
on a Saturday night and she said, I'm teaching this tomorrow, but I just want you to know I'm completely obsessed with this story. So that was fantastic news to hear after 13 years of writing with no real positive feedback or progress. Um, so the next day she got back to me and she said, you know, I ended up teaching this, but I used it as an example of writing well done because I really couldn't find anything to critique and my students didn't have any feedback. And she said, I'd love to see more. So I sent her my manuscript thinking, you know, this is super cool. If I'm going to get feedback from Erin, that's fantastic. Well, she went on and sent it to her agent that day. Ooh. Yeah, Ooh. that day. <laughs> right. So, but I was trying to play it cool. I was like, I, I know how this industry works. Like things just don't happen and they don't happen quickly. So I'm just going <laughs> to not worry about it. I'm going to pretend that didn't happen. I'm going to stay focused on my work on, on the next story. So that was a Sunday afternoon. And Monday morning, the very next morning, I woke up to an email from Erin saying her agent had read the book and loved the book and wanted to offer representation. So I call her my literary godmother because that's she just seems like it was just a Cinderella story for me after all those years to have it happen so quickly. Yeah, Erin's Aaron's awesome. She's been on the show before. Um, yeah. She, I've heard so many different stories of her helping writers in all different she, kinds of ways. Yeah, she's really generous. Yeah, we mentioned mm -hmm. on the, we did a committee, um, ask the committee, pitch wars committee thing last week. And someone had asked like, what about something interesting happened in pitch wars or whatever. And I was like, I told the story of, um, I was managing, you know, the, the mentor applications and yeah. I saw, Aaron and Charlie Kelly's name. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. I was like, Aaron and Charlie Kelly wants to be a pitch voice mentor. Um, freaked out a little bit. And then I, like, I went and stalked her Twitter and like, she had been tweeting about Gail's book. And so I was like, Gail, did you like get Aaron and Charlie Kelly to apply? And she was like, well, you know, she's like my mentor. So I just like mentioned it to her. You gotta give us a morning, Gail. Like you can't, <laughs> seriously, can't shock us like that. Well, I think um, the funny yeah, thing is a delight. When when she showed up, sort of in the forums behind the scenes, I think we were all like too scared to even say anything to her. Like usually, there's a lot of banter and teasing back and forth, oh, but yeah. we were all like, we can't do that with Erin and Trina Kelly. She's way too cool, and yeah, she is. She's amazing. Yeah, and she she's so nice. She's such a lovely person. And she really is. She always hit every deadline, which is as a committee member very very important. <laughs> yes, for sure. Um. All right. Well, I had questions about it, but then we got off on a tangent about how often awesome Erin is. Um. Okay. Yeah. So you kind of already answered this, but maybe we can go into it a little bit more in depth. Um. What was the first major bump that you hit along the way? And then how did you handle it? How did you recover from it? Yeah, so the first major bump I hit along the way actually happened very early in my career. The first book that I tried to write was a memoir because I had had a really, really weird, bizarre childhood. And so I thought, I'm just going to write a memoir because why would I bother making something up when it's not going to be as weird or probably even as interesting as my real life? So I wrote this memoir and I sent it off to agents. And I got a really high response rate. I mean, my response rate to my query was well over 50%. I think it was closer mm -hmm. to 75 or 80%. So I was really excited that this was going to happen for me. And every single agent passed 
And not only did they pass, but I actually had an agent respond to me and say, you know, I just wanted to let you know that I was really excited about your query. And I was so excited to read this book. And I was so disappointed by the quality of your writing and by the quality of the story. And basically just, you have no idea how to write a story or a scene or even a sentence and, you know, quit wasting my time was sort of the gist of it. Oh my God. So okay. yeah, that was that was sort of my introduction to the industry. And fortunately I'm a pretty tenacious person and I had already decided that I was gonna become a published author. So I was upset. And then I kind of sat down and thought about it and I was like, well, dang it, he's kind of right. Like you wouldn't go do open heart surgery without studying how to do heart surgery. And I've never studied writing and I have no idea how to write a book. So I just started reading every single book I could get my hands on and studying craft books. And so that was sort of the start of my long journey. And I just, I guess instead of giving up, I took it as a challenge to just try to work to improve my craft and, and hopefully never get that kind of feedback again, which thank goodness I never have, even though I still went on to get like 120 no's before I got to my yes. But yeah, yeah, there's publishing is filled with a lot of speed bumps and obstacles. It's all about just keeping going though, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So you had the same experience I did where we were both Pitch Wars mentors without a book deal, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which was like a particular yeah. kind of <laughs> experience. Yeah. Well, the funny story with me, my my end of Pitch Wars was that I had applied to Pitch Wars right after I wrote my third novel because I did not query that one right away. I had learned my lesson with the first two. I was going to let it sit for a while. Then I was going to come back and work on it. And I stumbled across Pitch Wars and I thought this would be fantastic. I would love nothing more in the world than to have a mentor. So I went ahead and applied. But at the same time, this online writing conference, Write on Con, was going on. So I posted my first five pages to Write on Con. And I had got some requests during Pitch so I was feeling excited, like maybe I have a chance of getting a mentor. And I remember being so excited when the list went up and thinking maybe I would be on it. And I wasn't on it. And I was completely crushed. And then the very next day, I got a call from an agent who said she had seen my staff at Right Uncon and wanted to offer representation. So um, the, one of the very first things I did was apply to be a Pitch Wars mentor. Because by that point, I'd been writing for six or seven years. And I was like, well, if my writing is finally there, maybe I can help somebody else, you know, in a way that I wanted to be helped. So yeah. And then of course I just fell in love with pitch wars. So here I am yeah. years and years later. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. I love it. I saw on my, so my parents watched the voice and I just, I catch snippets of it, but I had seen um, a performance a couple weeks ago where um, the, they didn't turn around. No one turned around for the singer. Right. So if you're mm -hmm. familiar with the voice, if they're interested in coaching the person, they turn their chair around. Um, and so the song ended and no one had turned around and it was a, a, a pretty young singer and um, Blake Shelton was telling her like, you're almost there. You're just not quite there yet. You just need to do like a little more work. And he gave their particular notes. Right. And he was like, and um, you know, come back next year. He's like, or go get a record deal and you don't need that. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And I feel like the, we have the same energy in pitch wars. Like if you yeah. don't get in pitch wars and you do get an agent or you get a book deal, like we're happy for you. Like we're That's not right. like, oh, we made a mistake. You know, we're, we're no, happy. For sure. So, yeah. That's um, why I our, love pitch wars. It's always about raising each other up and not, you know, trotting on each other, I guess. 
Yeah. 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 And I also, I really, really hate when people are like, oh, I got rejected from pitch wars. I'm always like, no, you didn't. Like the mentors <laughs> can only choose one person. Right. So just because they didn't choose you doesn't mean they rejected you. It means that they chose another person, which is like, I know it feels similar, but it's not yeah. the exact same thing. And I wish people knew how much we agonize over <laughs> these decisions, right? Like yeah. really agonize. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I was told, um, so it's funny because we know each other, but your publicist is actually the one who pitched um, for you to come on the show. And your publicist yes. told me that you drafted a book in a month. I did. Yeah. I um, tend to be a really fast writer. Okay. So as someone who did that on contract and hated it and cannot figure out how I did it, um, how, how did you do that? And can you, <laughs> can I replicate it? <laughs> yeah. Can you, you teach know, us? <laughs> yeah, I wish. Um, so my first couple of books took me a long time to write because I was a mother with very young children at home writing, you know, in very limited time slots, but I'm also a very fast typist and my, I would say my third, fourth and fifth books once I sat down to write, I just followed my character and let my character lead the way. So I was able to type those in for sure a month to two months mm. for at least three of those books. But wow. here's the problem, Sarah. None of those books sold because I didn't really know what I was doing, right? I was still learning craft. I was still learning plot. I had no idea how to do theme or character. So I don't know that fast drafting really works, but I did fast draft the sixth book. And I sent it out to a beta reader and that was the wolf's curse. And I sent it out to my most important, like somebody I really trust. And she got back to me and she said, you know, the writing's fine. The story's kind of fine, but it's not really working because your story is narrated by death and there's no death in the story and there's not actually any themes. So it's true that I drafted this story in 30 days, but then I threw the entire thing out and I started from scratch. Okay. So I actually, fast drafted the second first draft of The Wolf's Curse in about 30 days too. But at that point, I really had a much clearer picture in my head of what I wanted the story to look like. Mm. So I think it's possible to draft fast if you already know sort of what you're going mm -hmm. for. And then you just sit down and and if you're like me, like I get kind of obsessive. And so I really can't relax or focus on anything else until the story is out of my head. So for me, it's more mm -hmm. just about getting something down there so that I can go back and fix it later. But the my, my second book, the one that comes out next fall, that was the first time in my life where I ever struggled. Like it has been so hard to write over COVID. I mean, that book has mm -hmm. taken me, I only had eight weeks to write it technically from the time my editor said she wanted it until it was due, but I had been sort of working on it over the winter and boy, was it slow going. So I don't know <laughs> if I'll ever have this experience again of this magical book just sort of pouring out of me that worked really well. We'll see. Yeah. It sounds like you did a, a practice first fast draft and then I love that. Yes, I love that. It was did it for real. <laughs> it was definitely practice. Yeah. It taught me everything I did not want to do in this story. <laughs> so this is not a planned question, but I just realized as I, I was trying to remember the title of your book because we have your book, A Wolf's Curse, and then Juliana's book has wolf in the title. Oh, a wolf of Cape Fen. And then yep. um there's Wolf for a Spell. Kara Yep. Um, and, uh, and Roseanne so, Perry's. I was just like, Wander. And then there's um, 
There was a UK book that I got an arc of that I really like called yeah. the, the Wolf's Road. Um, oh, I haven't that was seen also that about one. grief. I have not seen that one. Yeah. Um, and so I was just like, what, what's up with all the wolves? <laughs> you know, I actually have been wondering that myself because there's kind of just a plethora of these fantasy wolf books. And I don't know, I guess there's always this sort of thing that happens where all of a sudden you see the market flood with one yeah, certain thing. And yeah. I don't even know how I arrived at a wolf really. Cause initially my Grim Reaper was going to be a crow because they're so smart and so intelligent. But if you write a book in which your Grim Reaper is a crow, then they can just pluck off the soul and fly away. And that doesn't really give you a lot to work with in terms of plot. So I was like, no, I need a four-legged animal that's really going to make me work a little bit in my plot. So <laughs> I was like, well, funny. wolf sounds good. But at that point, none of those other books had really been published. So it wasn't mm -hmm. like I was looking at, oh, you know, taking inspiration. I think it was just something that we all arrived at independently and here they are. Yeah, yeah. Because they all kind of, at least I heard of most of them like all around the same time. Yeah. Um, so speaking of what was the inspiration for writing um, Wolf's Curse? The inspiration was, okay, so I was standing in front of my bookshelves one day. I had just had a conversation with a friend of mine who was getting her MFA, and she knew that I had written all these books, and she really struggled to finish like book-length projects and to revise book-length projects. And she said, you know, you obviously have the skill set to write a book, so why don't you actually write a book that sells next time? Like, write something that could be sold. <laughs> And she didn't mean this meanly, like she was really curious, like, why don't you be more careful about what you pick and spend your time on and, and try to write to the market, which is generally kind of bad advice. But but it kind of went to my heart. I was like, you know, she's right. I kind of just write about whatever I sit down and feel like writing about. Why don't I think about a book at this point that might actually get me an agent in a book deal? So I went home and I was very consciously standing in front of my bookshelves um, just seeking inspiration, like what's out there? What could I do to build on some of those stories? And the book they jumped out at me, which is a story by Marcus Usak that is absolutely brilliant. If you don't know the story, it's set in Nazi Germany. And it's the story of a young girl who is sent to live with the foster family. But the really, really cool thing about the story is that it is narrated by death. So mm. at that moment, a light bulb just went off in my head and I thought, that is it. That is what I want to do. I want to try to write a story narrated by death, but I want to do it for the middle grade market. So that was the inspiration behind the Wolf's Curse. Mm, cool. Very cool. Yeah. Um, so you tackle themes of death and grief in your book. Um, why do you think it's important for children to read about these themes in the pages of a book? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I think as a society, we tend to buy into this ideal that childhood is this very joyful time that's sort of full of ice cream and puppy dogs and very happy. And that's changed a little bit because, of course, we've all been through COVID and the children have all been through COVID in the last couple of years. But even before COVID, we had mass shootings and we had poverty. And, you know, besides the gun violence, you have drugs and you have domestic violence. And the fact is that even if any particular kid isn't experiencing that themselves, they're still being exposed to that at school and they're most definitely being exposed to it online. So I think it really does an injustice to our children to not give them a safe space to tackle those themes and to think about them in a way that helps them process and helps them in a way that feels safe and, and also leaves them with a sense of hope. So that's what I tried to accomplish in The Wolf's Curse. And I think one of the cool things about 
writing a darker subject in fantasy is that it can be really layered. So if there are younger readers who aren't looking for those darker themes, they can just be captivated by the sea and the sky and all of the magic and all of the cool fantasy. And then the older and more mature readers can pull out those deeper themes of the death and the grief and the loss and spend a little bit more time with those. Nice. All right. So you spent about 13 years writing and querying different books, and then you um, got a, I'll brag on you a little bit, a six-figure <laughs> two-book deal um, after being on a submission for just like three weeks, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what advice do you have for writers who may be kind of in that same situation that you were a couple of years ago, where they've been trying and nothing's really been, um, you know, getting picked up? That's a great question. I mean, of course, the first thing is to look at your agent relationship um, and make sure that it's working for you. It could be somebody that you really love, like I really loved my first agent, and it might just be time for somebody who has a better vision for your career, more passion for your work, more contacts in the industry. Um, there can be any number of things with that relationship that maybe is not quite what you need it to be. And it might be um, an issue of just you haven't found the right story for your skill set. So for me, I think making the move to fantasy was something that I did with my fifth book. And that is kind of my sweet spot. And it took me a long time to get there. And my first agent kept telling me, like, keep experimenting. I feel like you haven't found what space you want to write in yet. And I wasn't quite sure what she meant by that because I was just writing the stories that I enjoyed writing. But I think you kind of know when a story clicks. Like I knew with The Wolf's Curse very early on, I didn't know if it would sell, but I know it was. I knew it was more authentically me and I had more fun writing it than anything I'd ever written before. So, but the most, the biggest thing is just keep going. Like so many people give up. And the thing that I always told myself is I, I can't control whether I get a book deal. Like there's so much in publishing that you cannot control. But the one thing that you can control is whether or not you keep going and whether or not you keep improving. So just stick with it. Nice. All right. Um, so I have the final interview question for you. Um, and mm -hmm. I just want to say, I realized about halfway through this, I really appreciate you wearing Pub Talk Live turquoise. Um, it's the same color as the background <laughs> and everything. So... I'm sure you did that on purpose. Um, all right. <laughs> this is a question I ask every guest on the show. What is the most important book that you've read and why with you defining important, however you would like? Yeah. I mean, of course, The Book Thief would be one of the most important books I've ever read because it literally changed the course of my publishing career. But another really important book to me is um, Kids Wilderness by David Almond. It is the book that I wrote, or excuse me, the book that I read way back at the beginning when I had written that memoir and I had been turned down by so many agents and I was really grappling with what to do next. And I knew that I loved children's literature, but I hadn't read middle grade books for literally decades at that point. I mean, since my childhood. And I remember picking up Kids Wilderness and reading it like start to finish and being so blown away by how he had combined this beautiful writing with this little bit of magic and how dark it was and how different that story was than the kinds of stories that I had access to when I was a kid, which was usually just kind of whatever was available on the library shelves of these very small towns or at secondhand bookstores. Like, um, 
it just had a profound impact on me. And I knew immediately that middle grade was where I belonged. So that was a hugely important story for me. Awesome. Cool. Very cool. All right. It is time to do the audio book of the week and you have a regular book of the week too. Um, so do you want to, we'll do yours first. How about that? Sure. That sounds great. Okay. So Starfish um, is a book by Lisa Phipps, and this is a beautiful story told in verse about a young girl who is fat shamed when she is in fifth grade for wearing a swimsuit in public. And so she goes on to develop a list of rules for fat girls to prevent her from being noticed, from being tormented, and over the course of the book, she develops some friendships and has some realizations and learns to live life for herself and not worry so much about what other people think. And I just think it's the story is incredible. And I think absolutely everybody should actually read it because it's just as a woman in particular, as a, a female in society or anybody who has ever felt uncomfortable about their outward appearance, the book just touches you on such a deep level. So go out and read it if you haven't already. Awesome. Um, also, like while you were, I was looking at this cover while you're talking, and my niece, um, just a, a couple weeks ago, she's like, she's almost three. She's turning three in January, and her mom was asking her some questions. I don't remember what it was. It was like, are you a princess or something? Because she was wearing, you know, like a princess dress. And she said, no, I'm a starfish. And it was just so random. Ooh, <laughs> but that's thought, awesome. Yeah. Uh, kind of random. I love but that. Related mm -hmm. a little bit. Mm -hmm. All right. So my audiobook of the week, because I didn't do one last show, so I had a lot to choose from, is Beasts of Prey by Anna Gray. Um, so I'm going to read the the thing here. Um, Beasts of Prey by Anna Gray, narrated by Keeler Lee, Toba Ott, and Ronald Pete. Uh, this is from the publisher. Fate binds two black teenagers together as they strike a dangerous alliance to hunt down the ancient creature menacing their home and discover much more than they bargained for. So if you haven't read it yet, it's fun. It's a YA. Um, there is, uh, there are like kind of scary jungle creatures and things like that. And some, you know, they run into, you know, some old mythological creatures like Groot slang and that kind of thing. Um, and it's just like a fun book, but uh, I I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really good. And um, and Ion is a friend of mine, but I think it's really good, so. <laughs> awesome. It looks All fantastic. Right. It's fun, it's fun. All right, and she was on um, the Today Show. She did an interview. Ooh. Yeah, so you can go watch that. All right, we're going to talk about the viewer poll that I did earlier this week and then decide, retroactively decided to do um, So I was listening to a little backstory. I was listening to, well, I guess before that, someone had revealed a cover and I was like, oof, I, like, I, I don't want to like, you know, rain on anyone's parade, but I was like, if I got that cover, I would be very upset. And I've seen some covers. You've seen some covers over the years, you know, that... Um, you just don't think are very good. And a lot of people don't think are very good. And then I was editing this podcast with John Copenhaver that came out on Thursday. And he said that he wanted to make sure that his cover represented his book well. And he was happy that the publisher worked with him. 
um, because a mystery, especially a lot of the times, they can be pretty generic looking, you know, they don't give a, a lot of way about the book. So I was wondering if you were forced to choose, and I wrote this question like that on purpose because I didn't want anyone to being like, well, it depends. Like, no, you can't say it depends. Um, <laughs> would you rather have a gorgeous cover that you felt like misrepresented the contents of your book or an artistically ugly cover, but it represents your book's contents well? And I was just interested to see how people would respond. Um, and it actually, this this kind of, percentage a layout uh, was steady the whole 24 hours of the poll it was right around 75 percent to 25 percent the whole time and um there were there's some comments you know there are things in the comments or replies where people are kind of like discussing why they chose certain things so if you want to go read that i'll put that in the chat um i was just like i thought it was a fascinating question and it's a complicated question too right because like neither is good <laughs> but yeah. they're for different reasons. What would you it's, choose? What do you think? Oh, Sarah, it's such a cruel question. Don't I make know. me choose. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So here's what went through my head when I first read it. My very first thought was, will definitely be because I want to have this covenant with my readers that they can trust me, that they know what they're getting. But then I thought, you know, we all say don't book a, don't judge a book by its cover, but we all judge books by their covers. Yeah. And if you don't have a killer cover, nobody's going to pick it up in the first place. And so if you don't sell your books, you're not going to have any readers to have that covenant with. So my thinking is, okay, definitely have the gorgeous cover because even if it doesn't represent what they're getting, they might still fall in love with it. And that would be better than never ever having the chance to garner readers in the first place. So I'm going with A, even though my ethics tell me like, feels better. Yeah. Yeah. So I had a pretty similar conversation with myself, um, <laughs> almost word for word, except um, my ethics are probably weaker than yours. <laughs> but <laughs> I also worked as a publicist for a long time. So I'm like, whatever gets attention, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah. And so also around the same time, all of this was happening, there was also a conversation going on um, where a, a, a person who ran like a book site was like, oh, I got sent this book and I thought it was self-published because the cover was really bad. Oh. Um, and but then they also said, well, I got these books and I just assumed they were by a big five because the covers were so fantastic. Um, but they're actually self-published. And so um, yeah, people definitely judge your book on its cover. And especially if we're talking about like in bookstore sales no one is going to pick up a book with an ugly cover. Yeah, um, that's right. And and so you you do run the risk of like someone being upset that like your book doesn't represent the cover. or I mean, the cover doesn't represent your book and like they maybe felt like they were misled by the cover. Uh, I mean, they still read the blurb. That's my other thing. It's like they read the blurb before they buy it, right? So right. they have some warning. Yeah. But then also we talked about a couple of weeks ago, um, a couple of different books that had covers that everyone interpreted as fantasy and they're contemporary. So mm -hmm. um, the Inheritance Games by Jennifer Lynn Barnes, mm -hmm. um, which I love that book, but I also, upon seeing the cover, thought it was fantasy uh, and it's not, it's contemporary. And there was another one, but oh, um, Angeline Bully's book, uh, Firekeeper's Daughter. 
Okay. It looks, the cover seems like it might be fantasy and it's not, it's contemporary, it's a mystery. I definitely um, thought that book was fantasy. Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, I have I have one other fun, funny cover story too, the house by the Cerulean Sea that's getting so mm -hmm. much attention. I saw that cover and totally thought it was a children's book. Like, I don't know if that's just because that's where my head is in the middle grade space, but I saw that book and I was like, wow, what a cool middle grade cover. I got to read that it book. It does and look I was like, like middle grade, yeah. Yeah. So, it yeah. Definitely, we, definitely does. Yeah. Um, and in that case, it kind of makes sense because it is about a house of children for children and yeah. it is whimsical, but it's like, yeah, definitely read middle grade to me. So, yeah, it's, it's fascinating discussion and like cover trends change. And I just saw when I was looking for news articles today, um, P who was it? it wasn't PW, it was a, a, another news outlet, did an article and then called it the book cover blob. And it was like, why so many of these book covers look the same? And let me see if I can find it real quick, because I didn't realize, like, honestly, some of these books that I was not aware of, I thought they were the same book because their covers are so similar. So really? it's, I'll put I'll put the link in the chat so people can check it out if they want. But um, so, it's like The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett, um, Detransition Baby by Tori Peter, Somebody's Daughter, Ashley Ford. And there are several others, but I feel like those are the three that like look the most alike and they have the same concept. And I'll put in the private chat so I think you can click on it there. But um, yeah, after like you see them all laid out like this and you're like, oh, wow, yeah. There, that's definitely a trend. <laughs> well, this is interesting. I was in bookstores a couple of weeks ago signing copies and an indie bookshop owner had um, PAX, which is a middle grade that came out uh, a couple of last year, maybe, or it came out a year or two ago. And now PAX Journey Home just came out last month and the covers are almost identical. And she said, it's mm -hmm. been a huge problem because she said every single time somebody walks by the display, they go, oh, we've already read that. And she has to yeah. go hand sell them like, no, this is the second book, but the covers are so close that people don't remember. Like maybe there's a second little fox. Maybe there's not like yeah. the, the covers are so similar that it re I think really did the book a disservice. Hmm. Yeah. All right. A lot. I mean, people always say, don't judge a book by a cover. But <laughs> everyone does. Yeah. So much money and research goes into designing covers. Like um, covers are really important. They're the, the primary marketing material for any book. So, yeah, that's right. I think it's interesting too, how you can really tell, like I've started to pay attention more to illustrators now that I have one. And so when a cover comes out, I can often be like, oh, that's the same illustrator that did this other book by this other author, because they all have this certain style. And that's kind of fun mm -hmm. to see too. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, it does contribute to books starting to look kind of the same, maybe. Yeah. All right. So that is our show for today. Um, Jessica, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm just going to read a couple outro things um, and then I'll see you in a minute. And uh, you can find Jessica's website and social media and some buy links as well in the description. So go check out her book and find her on social media and all that fun stuff. Thank you, Sarah. And thank, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. All right. Um, thank you all, ev everyone, so much for tuning in, whether you're watching live, watching the replay, or listening on podcast. Always appreciate you. Um, if you enjoyed the show, you know, tell your friends, subscribe to the channel. We are, I am ending kind of the regular show, but we're still going to be doing some interviews coming up just like less frequently, probably. And um, 
Upcoming, we have Wednesday write-ins. Those are continuing. So every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern, me and Bess Karnan host a um, virtual write-in where we write for 20 minutes, chat for 10 minutes, and do that three times and hopefully get some work done and also uh, have a little camaraderie. So hopefully you'll join us for those. Um, I think that is everything. So everyone, as always, stay safe, wash your hands, wear a mask, and we'll see you next time. Bye. If you're enjoying this show, please check out my other podcast, Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. Queries, Qualms, and Quirks asks published authors to share their successful query letter and discuss their journey from first spark to day of publication. I interview authors of all genres about how they got started writing, getting their book deal, and their experiences with publication. Search for it on your favorite podcast app.